I've been working this grave shift And I ain't yeah, yeah. shit I wish I me could buy me a spaceship and fly I swear I did Talk with Ben Tompkins, presented by Four Roses. Happy Friday, baby. Good to have you in. Thanks for coming back. And if you're just now joining us for the first time ever, welcome to the show, my friends. This is Real Talk. I am Ben Tompkins. We are presented by Four Roses Bourbon. And we have a very special guest for you today because today my guest is Matt Plummer. Matt is the CEO and the founder of a company called Zarvana. And Matt's a productivity coach. And Matt and I spent about an hour here talking about habit building and working from home routines, how to get into good routines, uh, building detachment routines, something that we should do if we're working from home and we're trying to separate work and leisure, right? Or just how to kind of unwind if you're leaving the office. Detachment, it's an important thing, okay? We talk about burnout. We talk about identifying the three symptoms of burnout, and Matt lays those out very, very vividly. Uh, how to define sustainability output and what that means. How to time block. How to boost your productivity. Matt talks about what the single touch rule is, something that I had never heard before, but is really great information. How to organize your inbox. How to delegate tasks. What is information fasting versus information feasting and not just how to make changes, but how to make changes that are going to last. We cover a lot of really good stuff, a lot of really good topics. Matt's awesome, and uh, former football player, played football at Yale. We talk about that a little bit, but then the uh, academic in me had to pull away and had to kind of wrestle away the conversation from the meathead in me wanting to take it to football when he said he played at Yale. So we get back on topic pretty quick, and uh, but really, I mean, really fascinating, you know? What was that like, How, juggling going to school at Yale and playing D1 football? I mean, that's got to be really tough. So we talk about that a little bit, but uh, a lot of this stuff I hope you'll be able to use and find helpful. And if you do, and if you enjoy this, then please leave me a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, subscribe, follow us on Twitter at BennyTomp18, on Instagram, same. Uh, we have a show page on Facebook at Real Talk WBennyT. And we're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Spotify, we're on SoundCloud. So wherever you are listening, however you may be listening, thank you so much. I hope you'll continue to do it. If you missed uh, Wednesday's episode, Uber Stories Part 5, go back. Pretty good stories in there. This is how we're going to do it. Two episodes a week, we'll do Uber stories and interviews. Uber stories and interviews. And by the end of this, I hope that uh, hopefully you get either entertainment or useful information from the interviews, but that you'll keep coming back, you'll keep drinking your Four Roses bourbon, and you'll be on the lookout because we're going to have some merch giveaways here coming up. My friends at Slimzy are kind enough. We're doing a little swap. I'm going to give them some advertising spots, and they're going to give me some branded Slim Can koozies that you can stick on either beer bottles or Trulies or White Claws, and they'll have my logo on them. And these are a couple of guys that I went to high school with that are very sharp engineering guys, and they've founded this company, and I think it's pretty cool. And I'm like, hey, we kind of have a opportunity to grow here together, why don't we 
do a little swap. And they're like, great, we're about it. So those are going to be in production. I've seen some rough sketches already. They look really good. I'm fucking hyped about them. And uh, once those are done, we're probably going to be doing some kind of a push like October, November, December. And uh, so be on the lookout for that. And uh, yeah, keep following along and keep coming back, baby. All right. Oh, and next week we'll have Uber Stories Part 6. Uh, probably either coming out on Tuesday or Wednesday, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, just kind of depends on if I've got the content to roll with it on Tuesday and I've got this thing uh, edited and ready to drop, then we'll put it out on Tuesday. But if not, we'll do Wednesday. And then my interview next week is a guy named Tim Schladen. And Tim is a next-door neighbor, and he we, we just kind of were out one day, in passing, hey, how you doing? What do you do? Blah, blah, blah. And he was like, I'm a social worker, a counselor, and an addiction specialist. And I was like, wow, you sound like somebody that would be perfect because I would love to dive into those topics with somebody on my podcast. And he's like, you do a podcast? And I'm like, yeah, I do a podcast. He's like, no way. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. You should come over. We'll tape an interview in the basement. I got a studio. And he's like, bet. Okay. Well, he didn't say bet, but you know, bet. And so, uh, we taped that this week, and that'll be dropping next week. It's raw. We go deep on a lot of stuff. It's really good. I'm not going to lie. I, like, uh, you know, no cap. I am not capping whatsoever. It's pretty freaking good. So I'm really excited about that for next week. <sighs> yeah, that's uh, that's about all we got. I hope you guys are doing well. Hope you guys enjoyed this conversation with Matt Plummer. And if you do, you can follow Matt on Twitter at MTPlummer. Check out his website, zarvana.com. And if you frequently read Harvard Business Review, check out the bylines. And more than likely, you're going to see Matt's name pop up on one of those if it's talking about productivity, time blocking, or any of the topics that we spend some time talking about right here. Now, without further ado, here is Matt Plummer. All right. I'm joined by Matt Plummer, CEO and founder of Zarvana. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben. It's great to be here. <laughs> Thank you for your time. I really appreciate this. I've been uh, lining up different interviews with people over the last few weeks and just trying to get people on that specialize in productivity, in perfectionism, in just kind of getting out of your own way. And so I'm very, very uh, pleased to have you on. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Yeah, those are important topics, particularly in this time. So let's start with you and kind of where you started, how you grew up, where you went to school, and ultimately how we got here. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in a small town in western New Jersey, uh, you know, a part of New Jersey that most people don't know exists. Think of Jersey Shore, but I was on the opposite side of the state, small rural town, farm country, horses, um, but also, you know, an hour from New York City, an hour and a half from Philadelphia. And so kind of uh, lived in that in-between of being in a more rural area, but having regular access to some of the big cities and <clears throat> was really into sports and school growing up, uh, you know, played football, uh, basketball, baseball through most of high school and uh, loved, you know, math and, and physics in high school. Those were kind of uh, two of the things I was really into. And then Ended up going to uh, Yale University after high school and played uh, college football there, uh, which was a, a different experience than being from a small high school uh, in Western New Jersey. Oh, I bet. <laughs> uh, oh, my God. But, uh, but a lot of good life lessons uh, came out of that experience and 
you know, I went into um, college thinking, okay, um, I love math, love science, love thinking about how things work. Why don't I study mechanical engineering and, you know, get into that flow of things. And then about halfway through, you know, I was kind of thinking, you know, I don't know that I necessarily want to be an engineer. Um, and I, I love understanding like how human behavior works and, you know, why people do certain things. And so decided to pick up psychology as a second major. And so that provided a nice balance uh, of <clears throat> going through school, studying on one hand, being really deep in math and the problem sets on engineering, but then uh, getting a chance to think more uh, about the psychological and social elements of, of society. So that, that was my college years. And a lot of people joked like, oh, did you want to become a psychologist to engineers? And no, that wasn't part of the plan. Um, <laughs> that sounds like a rough gig. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, definitely didn't want to sign up for that. Um, but, you know, considered a number of different things. But coming out of college, you know, uh, I, I felt like, okay, I have a decent background and understanding of, you know, math, analytics, science, and also the social element of, you know, psychology. And, and so I was like, the one thing that feels like it's really missing is this uh, area around how business works. And so ended up going to this company, just, you know, kind of a, a normal uh, company, uh, industrial supply distributor. So think of like Amazon for nuts and bolts and uh, went there as a management trainee, spent the first six months rotating around departments there. Uh, and then uh, ended up being a supervisor and then a manager uh, of a department about a year in was managing a department of like 45 people with three supervisors under me and not really knowing what I was doing. Uh, so that was <laughs> an interesting experience uh, and was managing people, you know, mostly around the age of my parents, um, which also took uh, and forced me to develop a lot of uh, lessons around emotional intelligence and how do you uh, you know, build respect with people and uh, empathize with people and still um, be their leader. So that was uh, a lot of interesting life lessons there. I'm sure probably um, like to, to me, that sounds like how to instruct and give instruction to older people without them hating you for that. Yes. Uh, the hating people, hating you was definitely a, a major uh, obstacle and pitfall to try to avoid and one that uh, unfortunately, uh, culturally, uh, was not always something that happened at that uh, company. And so you definitely had to be very intentional to avoid that from happening. <laughs> this is really random too, but uh, when, when we connected on LinkedIn, I saw that you were friends with uh, Eric Sin. And yeah. he played football here at a local high school in Kentucky and then went on to Yale. That's how I knew that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So he, he played at the same time I was there. And so we overlapped uh, during while we were on the team. Was that tough? I mean, you're a Yale student, and I mean, that's one of the most prestigious academic universities in the world, and then you're playing D1 football on top of that. Was it tough to manage your time? Yeah, I mean, it was for sure. And there was, uh, you know, I think during se during the season, it ended up being about 30 hours a week uh, in terms of time spent on football. And so, uh, that uh, certainly added a dimension to it um, that <clears throat> was unique in terms of trying to balance things. And I think that was the beginning of, you know, my parents are both uh, very productive in kind of their own ways. And so was instilled at an early age of like getting things done, working hard, you know, that work ethic. And so that was ingrained in me. And so when I got to college, it was 
probably the very early days, it wasn't a conscious thing of like, oh, I need to figure out how to be productive or manage my time. It was kind of more just problem solving. How do I get work done? And so uh, continuing to experiment and iterate around, okay, how can I do this a little better? Um, so those were probably the beginning days of my, you know, exploration into productivity without even knowing it. What position did you play? I played uh, on defense, a linebacker. Awesome. Cool. All right. No more football questions. I just had to, you know, <laughs> very curious. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, so then that's kind of where you start to get interested in productivity. And then I would imagine you're looking for ways to save time and, and kind of be efficient in juggling all that you were juggling at that time. So what was, I guess, the, the, um, how from there did you start Zarvana and kind of what was that process like building that from, hey, I'm interested in this to this can be a business to now we're doing it? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so after working at that first company, I transitioned to a management consulting firm for nonprofits, foundations and philanthropists. And it was a you know, pretty competitive consulting firm in terms of you know, the, the, the culture there, while very focused on social impact, was also very focused on like doing high quality work to significant clients. You know, think of Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and those types of organizations. And so, uh, as is true in most of the consulting world at that level, uh, you know, a lot of people end up burning out after a few years and saying, oh, I'm going to go back to business school just to get a break from this lifestyle of whether it's the travel or the long hours or just the demands around being in the client services. And so I saw that happening. And, uh, you know, in my early days, I remember about a year into the work, I was, it was July 4th and, you know, most people are going out and, and uh, lived in Boston and going out to the Charles River to watch the fireworks and just enjoy the day. And I was sitting in my little apartment, just like typing away, trying to finish some work that I hadn't gotten to. And so I was beginning to experience some of that myself and say, okay, I see the writing on the wall. I see like, this is a path that is, you know, a lot of people head down and end up having to leave a career that they otherwise love. Um, and they leave it prematurely because they don't feel like it's something that is sustainable. And so that was kind of one thing that, that was kind of coming up as I got into my first and second year in there. And then the second piece was really around this question of, okay, the path from being like an analyst or an associate, you know, kind of entry level in a consulting firm to becoming a manager uh, takes a number of years. And, you know, a number of people are kind of like, oh, I don't know that I want to keep doing this like year after year until I can become a manager. And so I was thinking, how can I speed up that process and accelerate that process? And there was, uh, you know, a, a event that uh, a company-wide retreat that we had. And one of the co-founders of the organization uh, said, we, we had an expression at the time that we wanted to grow a hundred times our impact. We want to multiply our impact by a hundred times while only growing our headcount by two. And so one of the other co-founders said, okay, if we're going to do that, we each need to increase our productivity by the same ratio. And that was kind of gotten, that was the first time probably that I actually thought about productivity consciously of like, oh, okay, this is something to, you know, think about, explore. Fast forward about a year and a half and that seed that had been planted was still with me and a coworker and I said, why don't we just start meeting every other week for 30 minutes and talk about productivity? 
And we didn't really know what we were going to do or, you know, what that was going to be like, but we were, we were like, ah, yeah, let's do it. It's not a lot of time. And so we did that for six months and really at the end of those six months had nothing to stand for it. I mean, we're, we're, it was just like a, a waste of time. <laughs> and, and so we had this like moment. I still remember, you know, I can picture being there um, in the office and we said, um, you know, whatever we've been doing for the last six months hasn't really worked. But when we are working with our clients, like in our normal work, we generally do a pretty good job. And so why don't we try to treat this like a client project? And literally in that moment, it transformed how we were thinking about it, what our approach was. And a longer story uh, short, basically what happened over the next few months is that uh, first in, in one month, we dropped our hours by about 10%. So we were getting the same amount of work done, but working 10% uh, less. And over, the, over about six to nine months, it got to the point where I was working under 40 hours a week when the average was about 55. And, uh, you know, similarly from, from other colleague who was, who was doing this with me, he was dropping his hours and, you know, we were still performing really well, getting promoted faster than average. And, um, that, as you can imagine, kind of spread to our peers and they're like, Oh, what are you doing? Like, how are you not here? Like at six o'clock or, or whatever the time was. And so we just started sharing, you know, this is what we're doing. This is, you know, the experiments we're running. And we kind of organized, a, a, you know, this little side initiative. We had more time to do it. Uh, and so um, over the course of a year, it grew to about 40 to 50 people across three offices uh, that were meeting on a, you know, semi-regular basis to explore this topic of how can we get more done in less time so that we can, one, grow and accelerate our careers faster, but at the same time, have a life outside of work that's fulfilling, that's healthy, and that is meaningful. And that was a personal journey of just discovering that and exploring that. And so one of the uh, original kind of visions of, of that uh, meeting with my coworker was, what if we could work on three to four projects in the time that everybody else does too? Because two is kind of whatever, everybody works on two projects. And uh, right about the time before I left um, the, the consulting firm, I actually got the opportunity to do kind of three and a half, three and a half, four projects uh, as a manager when the average was two. And so that was kind of the feeling like, okay, we met, we made it to our original vision. And was honestly, I don't know, I probably worked a, a bit more than the average uh, during that time. And it was pretty intense, but, but it was kind of like, okay, we figured out something that works. And so when I decided to leave uh, the consulting firm, it was like, hey, can I take this? That was personally super meaningful to me. And also, you know, to my peers, there's obviously a lot of interest in it and make this more widely available and help other people who are wrestling with these same questions. I bet there was a, people in your office that were like, you see what Plummer's doing lately? You see these projects he's churning out? Like, uh, what were some of the things that you started to do, like you said that you, you looked at it, you started to look at it as kind of like client solution. And so like, what was that change of thinking in, in how you were going about this? Yeah. So we started really simply with this idea of we need some way of measuring our productivity because we need to know if what we're doing is working or not working. And so we said, when you think about productivity, and I would define it a bit differently now, but, but at the time we said, okay, there's three dimensions. There's the uh, quantity of your work, there's the quality of your work, and there's the time it takes to do that work. 
And so we said, okay, quality, we don't have to worry about in our measurement because we know our supervisors will tell us if our quality is going down. And so we got that under control. And then we said quantity, you know, in consulting, it's not like you're like making, uh, you know, pencils or something where you can be like, well, I made a hundred pencils today and like 50 yesterday. So it's really hard to quantify. And so we said, okay, there's no way to really do this in a very specific way. So let's just make an assumption that the amount of work that we have to do in a two week, in a week long period will be roughly equal over time. So sure, from one week to the next, it might vary a bit, but if you look at the trends over time, it should be relatively consistent. And so we said, if that's the case, then let's just measure the number of hours we're working on uh, project related uh, work over the course of a five day period. And so we started with that very simple metric and then we said, okay, now we're going to set a goal and each of us said, let's try to drop over the course of a month. Let's try to drop that by 10%. And then what we would do is we would just meet every other week and we'd say, okay, where are you relative to your goal? And we would say, what experiments are you running right now to try to be more productive? And uh, you know, we tried everything. We, uh, we one time we tried um, actually having, I would go for a half hour and just watch him work and see if I could uh, find anything that, which was kind of weird and ended up not being super <laughs> fruitful. <laughs> but, and he did the same for me, you know, just like watch me for 30 minutes. And, uh, and so we tried all kinds of different things from keyboard shortcuts to uh, figuring out how to use to-do lists and how to use some of the technology and apps to figuring out how to have better conversations with people. And so, and we would just experiment with it and see, you know, what is the impact that that's having on our goal? And that was really where it started. We just started aggregating a list of things that seemed to be working. And then ultimately we built a diagnostic because we said, okay, there's so many things to, that you could do and so many things you could uh, focus on. So we need to help people figure out where to focus first. And so ultimately we built a diagnostic that would help people identify, okay, I should start here and focus on that. What was it like when you left your kind of regular nine to five job, or maybe it wasn't even nine to five hours, but like, what was it like leaving kind of the security of the job that you were working and then launching Zarvana? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a, it's always a big jump. Uh, and the, um, I think the most jarring thing for me was I went from being a manager, uh, you know, managing two to three teams, uh, basically my schedule being 70 to 80% full before the week began in terms of meetings. Mm. And so just constantly in and out of things, having to respond on the fly, doing mostly work with other people to then basically that first month I was all by, working all by myself, basically just writing content for the first program. And so that shift was dramatic. Uh, and so I really needed to figure out then how do I keep myself motivated and engaged when I'm just going to my computer by myself and doing the same thing for, you know, I went from like basically only being able to do work in mostly like 15 to 30 minute time slots to then having a whole day of just working on the same thing, which was dramatically different. And so learning motivation, how do you continue to operate at a consistent pace and learning focus uh, were certainly uh, significant challenges in the early days. Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of people are dealing with that now that were, you know, used to going into an office and then they start working from home and they're still in their pajamas and it's Wednesday and they're like, what the hell am I doing, you know? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, you know, that is a significant piece of working from home is, and you know, now I've had four years at it, so I, I'm pretty uh, comfortable with that. But the, the challenge is, you know, when we think about habit development and routines is that, you know, what prompts us to engage in certain behaviors is our, our environment or the cues that, you know, cues and triggers that surround us. And they prompt us to think certain ways, feel certain ways and do certain actions. And if you're used to going to the office, you have all these cues and environmental triggers that are prompting you to do your work in certain ways and feel motivated about doing work. Now, if you remove all those and place yourself in an environment like home, where all the cues in your home are prompting you to watch Netflix, go to the fridge, hang out with friends, then now all of a sudden you're being prompted to engage in behaviors that are not optimal for your current you know, situation. And so I end up talking a lot about with people in this current time of figuring out how do you redesign and create a space where the, the environmental triggers, the things around you, everything from what's on your desk is prompting you to think about work, prompting you to engage in work versus prompting you to engage in personal and home related behaviors. That was something I really struggled with because when I was living in the Bay Area, I was working a sales job and I was working from home and I was managing all in Northern California. And whenever I would come home from a meeting or something, you know, I've got a 550 foot square apartment in Santa Clara. I walk in the door, I can see my desk and I can see my couch in the same room. And it was hard for me to kind of like put up, um, like a like a mental block or something and be like no it's not time to sit down and watch whatever it's it's time to sit here and work but it it got really challenging to also know when to turn off and stop looking at the desk and because I ate there and I also worked there and then my bed was like you know 50 feet from it so I, it's just that was really tough for me and I'm sure a lot of other people deal with that too yeah and a lot of times you know there's a lot of focus on morning routines which is good and makes sense but when you're working from home, you also, uh, you know, I recommend developing an evening routine so that you have a certain time when you're disengaging from work and you actually schedule that into your calendar and even have what I would call a detachment activity, which is something that psychologically detaches you from your work. So you stop thinking about work as scheduled in. So say you stop, like, for example, on my calendar, I have six from eight, six to 8 p.m. blocked every day uh, to spend time with family. And so I know when that calendar invite hits that, okay, this is my prompt, this is my trigger to stop work, to wind down, you know, wherever I might be. And so that's prompting me to do that. Because otherwise, like you said, you don't have those other cues in your environment, like other people leaving the office or, uh, you know, the train schedule or, or whatever it might be uh, in terms of these other cues. And so you really need to build those in so that you have a routine that you're going to uh, and you know, at the end of the day. What are some detachment exercises that people can do if, if they're working from home right now and they're just like, how do I shut myself off? Yeah. And, you know, the challenge is a lot of times we say, okay, uh, stop thinking about work when you're not working. And people kind of do uh, the equivalent of, you know, if I were to say, here's a picture of a pink elephant. Now, don't think about elephants. And you'd be like, I can't, you know, like you can't tell me not to think about an elephant. And then, you know, uh, and so kind of brute force method of like, okay, I'm not going to think about work. I'm not going to think about work. Doesn't work. What you actually have to do is you have to engage your mind in a activity that requires at least a moderate level of attention. And that way your brain is occupied with something and 
is not free to kind of just roam back to work. And so one uh, <clears throat> coaching client that I worked with, for example, I was talking to him about this principle and he was like, oh yeah, you know, I used to play um, the card game magic, I guess, online. And uh, he's like, I haven't played that in years, but you know, maybe I'll pick that up and try that. Uh, and so he started playing magic at night just for, you know, for a little bit to, and that caught, because his mind needed to engage in the game and what was happening there, it wasn't able to go and drift back to work. And so it created an opportunity for him to disconnect from work. And so what I recommend is find something that engages your mind at a level sufficient to keep you from, you know, keep your mind from roaming back into uh, work-related issues. So you start Zarvana. Tell me about what it was like in the beginning for you. Um, you know, you kind of talked about what it was like transitioning from having this very set routine and then having all this free time. But, you know, in terms of adding employees and um, just kind of growing out more programs, like what was that like in the beginning for you? Yeah, it's it's definitely a bit of a roller coaster. Uh, so you know, the first month, kind of button down writing. I think I wrote uh, a curriculum that was thirty thousand words, and so you know, something you know, it's a lot of writing. And then quickly brought on um, about I think it was three individuals at first, and uh, started piloting the program with what ended up being about five companies. And so it went from uh, kind of very solitary to engaged with people again and you know exciting time of like working with some of our ideal like target clients and and f to be honest figuring out as we go like scrambling like okay we need to build this we need to figure this out you know as you're going and so very much flying the plane while building it and uh, that lasted for about six months and then part of the the challenge there is the from a capacity standpoint is we we weren't focused on like aligning the next set of clients during that time. And so uh, <clears throat> when those pilots came to an end, it was kind of like, okay, what's next? And in part, because the feedback we got basically in that very first pilot, you know, three years ago was, okay, there's some really good content here, really good principles, but the user experience isn't quite there. It's a little bit too intensive. And so we basically had to come back to the drawing board in terms of the program model. And so it went from like this high of like racing and being, you know, keeping up with what's happening to then, okay, pull back, step back, reevaluate, figure out, you know, what to do next, where to go from here, how to adjust and evolve and adapt the program. And so that first, you know, I guess it was nine months or so went from being like a lull to a major you know, high in terms to then back into a lull. And so I think, you know, and one of the challenges as many entrepreneurs will tell you is maintaining a sense of emotional and psychological uh, stability in the midst of rapidly changing uh, um, external environment. And so, you know, you can go from one day having, getting an email, it's like, we want you to do X on this big project for us and thinking, oh, this is amazing, you know, to the next day, uh, you know, something else happening that's like totally on the opposite end of the spectrum. And so how do you maintain that consistency uh, through that and and continue to uh, persevere and 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 be level-headed about things? Yeah, because it's tough to go through those ups and downs. And especially if you don't, you know, it's not like there's, you're getting feedback, but um, 
I don't when you're when you're off doing it on your own, you're kind of living and dying with every decision that you make, and that can be really tough emotionally. Absolutely, for sure. Yeah. So, who are some of the companies that you've worked with? So we've primarily worked with, from a company standpoint, we primarily worked with some consulting firms and then uh, some of the bigger tech companies, like the ones you would know. And um, and so we've done some workshops and some coaching uh, with their individuals and some have uh, piloted and used our online learning platform as well. And then, you know, from a coaching angle, there's kind of a pretty wide swath of individuals who we've worked with from a variety of different companies, from consumer product companies to, um, you know, uh, people who are more in the academic sphere. So it varies quite a bit in terms of uh, who is looking for either that help. So we we focus generally on four main topics. So Mm -hmm. productivity and time management being one and being kind of where we started. And then burnout prevention being kind of the other side of the coin to that. And then the other two, which have kind of evolved more um, over time, have been critical thinking and creativity and strategic thinking. So that being one bucket. And then uh, management. How do you manage people? How do you manage projects? How do you manage the thinking of a a project? So so we end up doing uh, a bit of a variety of, of things with individuals and companies. You hit on burnout, and um, that's something that we've been talking about a lot on the show recently. Is how do you stop yourself from getting to that point where you're just ready to quit? You're so over whatever you're doing. Uh, what are some things that that people can kind of incorporate into their own routine that that kind of is like maintenance? Like, okay, am I getting burned out? Am I close to the end right now? Yeah. So I think I would start with an understanding of what burnout is and what causes it. And so burnout, you know, as the World Health Organization defines it, is basically chronic workplace stress not successfully managed. And so I think one of the important things in that definition is the idea of chronic. So it means ongoing. So it doesn't mean that like, oh, my boss like had me stay late for like a week and now I'm burned out. No, it means that it's like ongoing. And that also means that the solution has to be one that affects your ongoing behaviors. A lot of times people, when I'm talking to them and they're in burnout, they're like, okay, well, I have a vacation coming up. I'm going to get two weeks out and like, and then I'll be fine. And I'm like, a vacation won't solve your burnout problems. It might like temporarily kind of reduce it slightly, but you can't solve a chronic problem with an acute time limited solution. And so that's one thing just to understand is like, okay, burnout is about chronic stress. And then the, the other thing is when you look at the symptoms, because it's helpful to recognize these early on, the uh, three symptoms of burnout are emotional exhaustion, basically like, oh, I couldn't do another thing. Um, apathy or cynicism, like, oh, I used to care about this work, but now I just don't care anymore. And then the third one is a reduced sense of personal efficacy, which basically is like, oh, I don't know if I'm really good at this. I don't know if I'm capable of this. And those can, you know, come in any different order, but often what happens is they go in the order that I just described of you're feeling exhausted. Eventually you feel so tired that you're like, I just don't care. Like I don't have the energy to care about it. And then you notice that, you know, you're feeling like, oh, I'm starting to have to cut corners. And so I'm not doing as good of a job. And so being aware of that progression and those symptoms. And then the other thing, so there's six main factors that cause burnout. And, uh, you know, oftentimes we think it's just about workload, like how much work do I have? But actually things like fairness, 
things like how well do your values align with the values of your company or team, uh, the community that you have and, and this feeling of belonging. Uh, so those things also matter to burnout. So you, your workload might be fine. And I see this, I see people who are working 40 hours a week, you know, don't have too much work to do, but they are feeling like on the verge of burnout. And it's because of some of these other dimensions. And so if you have a very singular view of burnout being caused by workload, then you can miss the fact that these other factors are actually contributing to it. So that's kind of just context of like, okay, that helps, you know, helps you understand when it happens, what, what to do when it's not happening. The first step then that I would, that I would say to people is to uh, have basically define what sustainability is for yourself. And so that means the way I define sustainability is, could you continue your performance at the same level of quality indefinitely without having to stop? If you're like, I couldn't do this for a year, I couldn't do this for 10 years, then it's not sustainable over that portion of time. And so figuring out what would have to be true in order for it to be sustainable, in order for me to continue at this level of quality and output, that helps you understand what the definition is. Because once you define that, then you can orient yourself around that. And so for some people, you know, for example, they say, okay, I need to not work after dinner at least three out of five days a week. And that will make, that'll make me feel sustainable. Other people are like, I can't work on the weekend at least three weeks out of the month. Or some people are like, I, I can't work more than 50 hours. Or they could be like, I need to get to the gym for at least an hour, five days a week. And so it's gonna be different for every person and it will vary over time and evolve. But if you can figure out for yourself right now, what would have to be true in order for you to sustain your level of output and quality then that will help you kind of draw the boundaries of what needs to be true in order for you not to burn out. And then there's a host of kind of strategies that will help you kind of make that possible. But if you just start with that goal kind of and get clear about that and then start tracking your progress towards it, like well, how many nights a week am I currently, uh, you know, starting work after I eat dinner and then set a goal, which kind of is like where I started, you know, back to my story of like, it was around hours. Uh, if you just set that goal, get clear about that and start tracking it, that alone will do, uh, you know, a significant, uh, contribute significantly to your efforts to prevent burnout. More with Matt in a minute, but first, I got to tell you about my friends at Four Roses Bourbon, who would like me to remind you that winning deserves a worthy reward and you should celebrate life's wins with Four Roses family of award-winning bourbons. Sit back. Relax, take a sip, and savor the victory. Learn more at fourrosesbourbon.com. Be mellow, be responsible, my friends. Now back to Matt. Why do you think people have such a hard time carving out that time to go to the gym or go on a walk or, or do whatever where they can just kind of unplug? Do you think it's it's like because so many times we measure um, productivity in how busy you are when you're like, oh, I've got this big schedule and I've got all these meetings and, and it looks like you're very busy, but then you can maybe not getting as much done. So like in, entering that kind of perspective into the workforce where it's like, hey, we're, we're going to do, you know, four day work weeks or we're going to do five hour work days or something like that's still very foreign to people. Is that kind of what you find? Am I in the ballpark? Yeah, I think it's two things. One is what you're describing, which is that a large number of people derive their value, their sense of personal value from working hard. 
or working well at their job. And so if my value comes from working hard, then my tendency, my tendency as a person will always to be, will always be to do things that increase my own sense of personal value. And so if I think I feel more valuable when I work hard, then my tendency is always going to be to work harder, not smarter. It'll be work harder because that is where I derive value as a person. And so as long as you have that value being central, you're going to end up being counterproductive because you're going to act in ways that cause you to work harder, not smarter. So that's one, one of the pieces which relates to this idea of like, why busyness? Why do we, why are we kind of infatuated with a sense of busyness? Um, and, you know, over time that has become more, there's more social pressure around it because other people now reinforce that like, oh, how are you doing? I'm so busy. Yeah. Like, and you feel kind of a sense of uh, value that comes from that because you're working hard. Right. The other thing is that more jobs today, you know, the, uh, the increase of like knowledge or information workers where you're doing thinking with your brain, you're not, you know, standing at an assembly line working on something that has led to the place where it's no longer, okay, you have your nine to five shift and then you're done and you can just disconnect from work and you can't do work from home. Now mm-hmm. your, your work is thinking it's, it's using your brain. And so that can happen kind of anytime in any way. And what happens is work is like a magnet and it will always kind of try to take as much of your life as you allow it to take. And so some people don't have other magnets in their life that are pulling in the opposite direction. And so work just takes more and more and more and more. And you need to set up other magnets that are pulling you, your time commitments, pulling you the opposite direction. Because otherwise work just the way it is, it will take more of your life. And so recognizing that from an environmental standpoint, in terms of like the environment that you exist in, work will always place increasing demands on your time. And so you have to actively resist that. Yeah, I think it's um, you talked about the social pressure of when you talk to somebody and they just talk about work and being busy. And and if you come across somebody that isn't saying all those things, I think that people walk away and they're like slacker. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it goes back to this idea of a FaceTime culture, which is is present, but changed in the covid world, which is, you know, Okay, now it's, you know, what is your Slack, uh, you know, uh, status on, you know, are you be, are you available or like, oh, wait, so and so is not available right now. What are they doing? Are they slacking off? Are they going for a run? You know, and so the idea and, and I think we're as a society pushing back on this, but I think it's still very true, particularly in some industries that as a society, we still have this sense of like, okay, you need to be at work you need to be doing work for a certain period of time versus like just get your work done as as fast as possible which will be better for you and better for the company so yeah we used i think it was microsoft link but it was always show like kind of a green or a yellow or a red button and, and i remember sometimes i i used to work with um kind of like a, a price coordinator basically hand in hand and there would be sometimes where he would mention it on the phone like hey i noticed that you weren't you know green in a while and you know it's mm-hmm. you, a party you wants to be like well you don't know my schedule you know what are you talking about but but people look at that people people are paying attention to that yeah and it's unfortunate that it is because what really matters is the output of your work not availability i mean there's some jobs obviously where you need to be available for periods of time you know because of your client facing or, or whatever else. But, you know, for the most part, 
it matters what you produce and do you produce work at a high quality level on time? And if the answer is yes, then it doesn't matter, you know, when you do that or how you do that uh, for the most part. So what are some habits that we can incorporate into our own routines to boost productivity and to start getting things done shorter or working more focused? Like what are some of those things that like, you know, me or anybody that listens to this could start to kind of do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. So the first thing I'd say is actually planning out your whole day in advance. And so this is a concept in productivity circles called time blocking, where you actually schedule out your day and say, okay, for this half hour, I'm going to work on this. For this hour, I'm going to work on this. And so you actually have the whole day kind of predetermined, uh, so to speak. And that, you know, there's this really interesting research that basically, uh, this company of radiologists. So think of like doctors who are processing cues of x-rays and CT scans and that type of thing. And they said, okay, for two years, we're going to split people into two groups. One group has to follow the company policy, which is first in first out. So the first piece of work in your queue, you have to do that and do it in order. The other group do it however you want. It doesn't matter. You pick. And then what they said, they looked at their productivity rates. And what was interesting is that when they looked at the, individual amount of time that it took to process a x-ray you know between the two groups it was the same there's no difference you know but when they looked at the total amount of time that it took to do the same amount of work like over the course of the day they found that the group that was following the company policy was 13 percent more productive than the other group hmm. and they're like why is that and so what they realized is that it wasn't that the strategies that the other group the the kind of free to do it your way um, the strategies that they used were any less productive or, or nonsensical. But what happened was the process of making a decision about which work to pull next each time, just that decision-making time added over an hour to their day over the course of time. And so what that means is that as you think about your work, if you're trying to decide what to do next, every time you finish the last thing, that decision-making time will add about 13%, you know, 10, 13% to your day. So a huge amount of time that you don't even recognize because it feels invisible. You don't think, oh, well, I just spent a minute working on, you know, thinking about that. So the first thing is to take, start at the beginning of the day and, you know, look at your to-do list, which is another thing, you know, looking at your to-do list, figure out what's the high priority task, which start to be sorted. So you see, okay, here are my high priority items, pull from that and actually schedule out the day. The important thing when you do that is to make sure your calendar is as realistic as possible, which means that if, you know, oftentimes people are like, okay, I scheduled out my calendar. And I'm like, do you have any time for checking email on here? And they're like, no. I'm like, do you have any time for like taking a break, going to the bathroom, you know, eating lunch? Do you have any time for dealing with things that you don't yet know, but that will come up during the day? Like, no. And the problem with that is if that is true, then your calendar doesn't reflect reality. And if your calendar doesn't reflect reality, then you're gonna stop following it. And then the whole system breaks down. And so you need to make sure that you're building in time for checking email, for taking breaks, for you know, doing things that unanticipated or buffer time, I call it. And so that would, if, you know, I'm a big uh, advocate for starting with one thing. And so if I could recommend one thing, I would start there. Um, but beyond that, what I would say is two other things I'll mention quickly is when it comes to email, the uh, main uh, practice and most important practice that I will you know, talk about is what I call the single touch rule. And this is the idea that <clears throat> when 
when you read an email in your inbox, a lot of times people just leave it there. And a full inbox wastes a lot of time. And so as soon as you read an email for the first time, you wanna move that out of your inbox. You never wanna leave an email in your, in your inbox after you've read it. And so there's a whole kind of system of actions that you, you know, have to have you know, basically on cue in order to make that work. But the point is that if you can do that, most people would actually, you know, even people who I talk to have thousands of emails in their inbox. If they follow that rule, they would actually have a relatively clear inbox. And I'm not big on zero inbox as like some like lofty goal. It's more, I'm like, if you wanna be obsessive about something, don't be obsessive about being at zero, be obsessive about using the single touch rule and your email will stay very well maintained. Um, and part of what you need to do in order for that to be true is that if there's something, say, say you send me an email and you ask for something, you um, to answer some questions that's gonna take me a while and then I'm not gonna do right then. I need to then add that email or that task related to the email to my to-do list so that then it is a task and it's with all the other tasks that I have to do versus keeping that in my inbox. And because a lot of times people maintain two separate task management systems, they have their to-do list or multiple to-do lists, and then they have their inbox. And what happens in that scenario is that <clears throat> for a variety of reasons, uh, which I won't get into here, but is, uh, the people's tendency will say you have 20 minutes between calls, your tendency will be to go to your inbox. And so if you don't have all your tasks in one spot and know that this is what you're working off of, your tendency will always be to go to your inbox. And so what happens is people have 30 minutes between meetings and they go to their inbox, they waste about 15 minutes. And then they're like, oh, I only have 15 more minutes. There's nothing I can really do now. And so because they haven't time blocked that time of like for that 30 minutes, I'm going to spend it here. And because they are operating out of two different task management systems, they aren't able to make good decisions about what to do next. The last one I'll, I'll share, well, happy to share more, but the last one I'll share uh, before I turn it back to you is the, um, what I call the pause. And this is, uh, a lot of times people complain about other people that they work with uh, just badgering them on communication channels, whether it's link as you said or email or text message or whatsapp or slack and this idea that everything de demands an immediate response and part of the challenge is that um, we actually train people when to expect a response from us so if every time you sent me an email or a message and on whatever platform if i respond immediately to that you're going to begin to expect an immediate response from me even if you didn't beforehand and so I'm actually training you to expect an immediate response to me. So then say something happens and I don't get back to you for an hour, you might be like, you might send me a text message. And then if that doesn't work, you might give me a call. And, and cause you're, you've been conditioned even without even realizing it to expect an immediate response. And so the pause is when you get a incoming communication from someone, unless it's someone you've been trying to get a hold of for a long time, pause, give it at least several minutes before sending a communication back. And that breaks apart that immediate conditioning that happens so that the people in your environment won't expect immediate response from you and will give you the space to do work in the priority level that you, you think it should be done. That one's really good because I would a lot of times send off an email or a response to something just 
wanting to just get it done, right? Not even put it on the to-do list, but just like, all right, it's gone. And then, yeah, that, that conditioning where people are then expecting you to, or sometimes, I'm not going to lie, I would sometimes do this, you place your expectations on other people. And then I'm like, well, if I can hit them right back, why can't they hit me right back? And then that's, it gets into kind of a toxic cycle there. Absolutely. Yeah. So I like, I like the pause. That's really good stuff. Man. <laughs> cool. Um, what do you do when perfectionism starts to weigh down your productivity? Yeah. I mean, I would say at this point, I don't struggle with perfectionism too much. Um, but there was certainly a time when I did. And I think, you know, the first thing is that perfectionism basically, uh, is putting quality as the primary goal of your work. So means quality has to be perfect <clears throat> and quality is actually not the primary goal of my work. Uh, and it's not the primary goal of most people's work. Uh, instead, the, the primary goal is what I would, I would use the term impact. And so, for example, if I'm doing a sales call, my primary goal isn't to like say the perfect words at every time and make sure I say it. it's get a sale, right? And like do what works to get the sale. And so, you know, and you can apply this in any context, but whatever the impact is that you're trying to achieve, whether that be sales or uh, societal benefit or whatever it might be, if you prioritize that and put that as the primary goal and then allow that to trickle down and affect how you're doing your work, then you won't be so inclined to focus on getting it to a perfect quality. The other thing to recognize about perfectionism is it's basically uh, the way I like to describe it. It's climbing a mountain with the goal of reaching the summit when there is no summit, because what's perfect. You don't know it's some amorphous goal. And so you just keep going and going and going. You're just climbing the mountain, climbing the mountain thinking, Oh, maybe I'll get there at some point. But there is no summit on perfectionism because what does perfect mean? In almost every job, you can't actually measure perfection in that in any sort of objective, realistic way. And so you're really just climbing towards some nebulous goal that doesn't exist. And so the the antidote to that is what I call um, particularly say, for example, that you struggle um, with emails and you say, OK, I, I need to make the email perfect before I send it. And so you waste a bunch of time and maybe you delay sending the email. So there, what I would say is follow what I call a completion process. And so this is the idea of saying, okay, what are the things that I want to check before sending this email that I make sure are, are right? You know, it might be like spell check, obviously, make sure it's assigned to the right person, make sure the insight or the answer is at, in the front that I've bolded it or, you know, whatever that list is. And then what you do is when you write that email, you go through your checklist. And as long as you can check off everything on the checklist, then you're good to send the email. And so what you're doing is you're taking what used to be this amorphous goal of it needs to be the perfect email and you're making it discreet. And you say, if, as long as I can follow this, I follow this process, I'm considering it perfect. It's good to go. And so then you put your trust in the process that is very discreet. It's easy to see whether you've done it or not versus something amorphous that you can't tell if you've done it. And so for things like that, like writing an email or, or whatever you might be doing, if you can instill a completion process that, that can help, um, you know, get over this hump of pursuing some aspiration of perfection. Yeah, because uh, there, there would be some times where I'd be writing an email and might spend 30 or 40 minutes just reading it, rereading it, rereading it. I'd send it off. Great. Now there's 50 more, you know? Uh-huh. 
yeah. one of those things. So, um, and I'm also I'm also not good at delegating tasks, and and part of that I think stems from kind of a an OCD about perfectionism, and and if I feel like I'm not the one doing it, then it's not going to meet my standard, right? So, so for people like me that that are like, okay, yeah, that I I, I can kind of see some of that in myself too. Like, what can we do in order to delegate tasks and and feel kind of fulfilled? Like, how can we get better at relinquishing that responsibility? Yeah, it's a it's a good question, and the what what you're getting at kind of is two things. One is if you're basic, if you're worried about the quality of other people of the work, if you delegate it, then, you know, essentially what you're doing is you're, uh, you're falling into a short sighted view of people development, by which I mean, you're saying, okay, it's better for me to just do this myself than to invest the time in others to get to the point where they can do it at the quality level that I would expect or want. And that is true in the short term. You know, it's always, you know, anytime that you delegate a task to someone in the early days, you could do it faster uh, for the most part, right? Or at least anytime that you would have trouble relinquishing control. And so that is definitely going to be true. But if you multiply that over weeks or months, that ends up losing you tons of time because if they could do, you know, say even an hour task, say someone could do an hour, um, an hour long task and you could do it in 45 minutes. Sure, you save 15 minutes of total time by you doing it. Uh, but if you have them getting to a point where they can do it over time, then you're saving that 45 minutes. And so um, taking a long-term view of saying, okay, you know, <clears throat> this isn't going, this is gonna cost me time initially, but it's going to give me the ability to free me up over time is the first thing I would say. And then the second thing is, if the, the one uh, thing that someone said to me once was, you always want to be doing your uh, boss's job. And that really stuck with me because then what I, I always focused on was saying, okay, how can I take work off of their plate and do more of their work? And in order to do that, in order for that to be true, I have to push more of my work down because you know you only have limited capacity. And so you have to do less of the bottom tier of your work in order to do more of the work above you and doing more of the work above you is the way to, you know, accelerate your professional development and career development fast. Uh, and so if you have that principle and value kind of baked in, then it's going to force you to delegate more because you recognize that the path to promotion is doing more of the work that is above your pay grade right now not doing more of the work that is easy for someone at your position to do. <clears throat> and so uh, some people say, oh, I feel threatened by the people below me, like, you know, giving them the work. Like, what if they do a good job? I'm like, that's perfect if they do a good job, because then that frees you up to do more of the work above you. If you're worried about not getting to do a good job at the work that you're being assigned, then you're you're missing the point that like actually the, that's not going to get you where you want to go it's not going to get you to the next level got it good tips um 
So a lot of what you deal with is helping people implement changes and like the changes that are going to last. And it kind of comes back to this age old question of do people change? Like, do we really change as human beings? Right. And so I'm just kind of curious as to what your take is on that. And, um, you know, a difference between change, making changes and making changes that are going to last. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, it's so important. Um, and that is kind of the, one of the main kind of principles and values that I've had at Zervana is how do we help people make a lasting change, sustaining change, because otherwise it's a waste of my time, right? If I work mm-hmm. with you for three months and you make some changes and, and do better, but then three months later, you're back to where you started, we both just wasted our time. And so that is not something that I want to be a part of. And so how do you make lasting change? Uh, so I think first it's it's worth noting a few things that are kind of problematic at a societal level. Uh, One is that we are um, very obsessed with information consumption. You know, uh, there was a stat a few years ago that said that we're consuming five times the information we do in a single day today that a person did in the 1980s. And so we're just (laughs) overwhelmed with information and it makes us feel smart and it makes us feel like we're better people. Like, oh yeah, well, like, you know, nobody would say this, but this is what they're thinking. Like, well, you know, I read like all these blogs and I listen to like 10 podcasts this week. And, and so we think that we are changing ourselves just by consuming information. But information consumption is at least two steps away from trans- what I would call transformation. And so first you have to remember the information. And all the data on memory shows that people forget about 70% of what they hear or learn or, you know, consume within a 24 to 48 hour period. So most wow. of what you wow. hear, you know, is going to just go out the window and you know, you won't even remember it. Then of that 30% that remains, you then have to apply it. And that is really challenging uh, because first you have to figure out uh, how to apply it. So if I tell you something like, um, you know, delegate more, for example, if I were just like, okay, Ben, delegate more, uh, you know, you would then have to figure out, well, how do I delegate more? And then, so say you even figured out how to do it. Then when it actually came time to do it, you would actually have to convince yourself, one, remember to do it, and then convince yourself that you should do it in that moment and then execute it. And so what the point I'm trying to make is that the gap between information consumption and transformation is huge. And we often think that information consumption equals transformation. And the result of that is that we spend so much time consuming information and so little time focused on implementing behaviors. And so when I'm talking with someone and working with someone, I usually come at the end of an hour long call and say, okay, here are the like, as we've been talking, here are the like one to two behaviors to work on. Everything else that we, and we might cover 10 behaviors, let's say, but I'm like, okay, these two, just, just do those. Just do those over the next week. And then what we do is we actually spend time in the subsequent call focusing on what I call troubleshooting, where it's like, okay, you were able to implement it here in this way, but not here. Why did that happen? Okay, how do we adjust the behavior and design the behavior? How do we make changes to your environment to make it easier for that to happen? And so you you have to focus more of your energy and time on application. And what I often tell people is, you want to cycle between information fasting and information feasting. 
And so what I'll do is I'll, when I need to learn about a topic, like um, right now I'm really um, spending a lot of time thinking about willpower. And so I'm in an information feasting season around willpower of, okay, how do I, how do I learn about this? How do I you know, get as much information in as I can? But then I'm going to move into an information fasting period where I'm not learning more information about willpower. I'm just taking what I just spent a few months learning and I'm just applying it. I'm saying, okay, what, how does that work? Why does that work? That didn't work. Why not? And so we need to have those seasons in the cycle in our lives so that we can actually devote the energy and mental capacity to applying it in our lives and, and figuring out how to do that. Yeah, because how many articles do we read online and we're like, oh, that was a really good article. And then we the next day are like, oh, yeah, I don't remember any of that stuff now. Exactly. A lot. Yeah. Um, okay, just a couple more. Do you have any quotes or mantras that guide your life? I wouldn't say uh, I have too many there, but one of the things that um, has been uh, very significant to me in my kind of entrepreneurial journey um, has been, so So I've uh, faith is important to me. And so one of the things that I've kind of in my journey um, my spiritual journey with God that has come out is this idea of that success, the, how I measure success is based on whether I'm following what I think God is telling me to do. And what I would say for people who don't have a faith background is if I measure my success by something that I can't control, I'm going to be discouraged because you, you have no control over it. So for example, if I measure my success by, you know, the size of my company that I have limited control over, you know, there's other factors there, then I could be disappointed by that or by how well other people love me or how many followers I have on, you know, Twitter or how many people listen to my podcast or sign up for my newsletter. I'm going to be discouraged and that goes back to the emotional stability point. And so for me, I really carry, um, so what can you control? You can control uh, your development of yourself, your character development. And so for me, I, that, I sum that up in this phrase of success equals obedience. But for other people, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're not real, you know, have a faith background or whatever, the, what I would recommend is like, when you think about what, how you define success and where you derive value from, it, the more it can be based on something internal, like your character that you have full control over developing, you know, that doesn't matter what your external environment is, you have the ability to control that that will allow you to have consistency and stability in the midst of changing, particularly right now where the external environment is so dramatically uh, variable and chaotic. And then what's the truest thing that you've learned about business in your career? It would come down to uh, perseverance. And, you know, you hear this a lot, but I, you know, I often tell my wife, I'm like, if we can teach our kids one thing, it would be uh, how to persevere. And, you know, because I think, as, as I mentioned earlier, there's, there's, some, there's a roller coaster ride. And so the idea of how can, you, uh, how can you keep doing hard things, even when you don't feel like they're producing the benefit that you want, even though you might not feel motivated to do them. And so that's why I have a big focus on, on willpower, too, is this idea of, how do you get yourself to do things that you don't want to do? Because uh, most good things and our, you know, things that are good for us, we don't really want to do them. 
<laughs> unfortunately. I'm like, why is that? But no, it's unfortunate. Yeah. But the point is like, if you can build that internal muscle of being able to do hard things and do things that you don't want to do, then, and, and you know, this goes to the whole topic of grit, which is, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Angela Duckworth's work, but um, basically, you know, grit is one of the main determinants of success kind of at, in all spheres and industries. And so this idea of grit and perseverance is, uh, you know, I think central to anyone who would uh, start a business is, you know, and, and people are recognizing that uh, more so in this time where they are having to adapt, they're having to pivot, they're having to change things, they're having to respond to losing half of their business. You know, a friend of mine who runs a small business lost half of his clients overnight, you know? Um, and so uh, how, do you, how do you deal with that and how do you handle that? And can you build the internal muscle to be able to weather those storms and to keep going, keep innovating, keep being creative? Matt, this has been awesome. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. I'm glad that we got the chance to connect. And uh, I think that my listeners are really going to enjoy a lot of the tips and, and habits that you've shared in this podcast. Thank you so much. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be part of it. So thanks for having me on the show, Ben. All right. Hope you guys enjoyed Matt and both the podcasts from this week, Uber Stories Part 5 from Wednesday. If you missed that, it's up. Go back. Listen, there's a couple of good ones on there. Uh, be on the lookout next week. Like I said, I'm going to be doing two podcasts per week. So we'll do one Uber Stories early in the week. Still trying to figure out if I'm going to do that on Tuesdays or Wednesdays. I know this week I put it out on a Wednesday because everything just wasn't ready to go on Tuesday. But if I can, I want to try to do it on maybe Tuesday, Friday give you guys a little bit of time to catch up if you don't listen to these right when they drop. I understand you got busy stuff you got to do, but hey, come back. The content will be there and uh, everybody will be good to go. Okay. Uh, Uber Stories Part 6 plus Tim Schladen next week. Tim is a social worker. He's a counselor and he's an addiction specialist. And we get pretty deep and pretty raw in our conversation about addiction and in his work with people. It's really interesting. It's really fascinating. He's a next door neighbor. I saw him walking down the street one day and we just happened to talk in passing. And I was like, hey, what do you do? And he's like, well, I'm a social worker and I specialize in addiction. And I'm like, wow, really? You should come on my podcast. He was like, okay. <laughs> so he walked over and we taped an interview this week. And it was it's really good. It's really good stuff. Goes really deep. Talk about rock bottom. Talk about what helped him. He's been sober 34 years. And now uh, he went from suffering from addiction and kind of not knowing where he was going to go with life, going back to college, and now, 34 years later, he's doing pretty freaking well. And uh, I had an awesome time speaking with him, and I know that you're going to have an awesome time listening to it, because a lot of the stuff that we talk about is deep, it's revealing, it's, it's honest, and it's vulnerable, and we talk about that, the power of vulnerability, and why that's important. You know, and he's got a couple of really good takes on that. So that's really good. That'll be out next Friday. And uh, yeah, that's how we're going to keep kind of going at this thing is Uber stories and interviews, Uber stories and interviews. So I hope you'll keep listening. Thank you for listening. Do me a favor. All right. If you have enjoyed these last couple months, uh, but certainly the last couple weeks of episodes that we've been doing, then please take a minute, take one minute, just one, okay? And leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Check us out on Facebook at Real Talk W Benny T. And of course, we are on Twitter and Instagram at BennyTomp18. 
Everybody have a great weekend. Drink lots of Four Roses bourbon, and I will talk to you next week. I am Ben Tompkins. That is Real Talk.